You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you need batteries for your truck, batteries for your trail cameras, TV remote controls, flashlights, you name it, Interstate Batteries has what you need. They have thousands of retail locations all over the United States. So stop in, talk to a battery specialist, or for more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys. I'm going to kick this podcast off with... Um, just kind of brace yourself. This is something that, uh, once again, uh, we're going to dive deep into the bushes um, of land management, but specifically for the wild turkey. We have Mr. Dr. Mike Chamberlain here to discuss a seminar that Matt and I set in yesterday. Yep. Welcome back to the NWTF show. You hear the guy on the intercom, and uh, but we're going to talk to him about his seminar yesterday and all his research that he's got going on in the southeast thanks for coming on thank you for having me yeah it's uh it's it's very uh it's exciting for us we've been following your turkey tip tuesdays and on uh, social media on social media um so basically if you guys want to learn those i'm gonna we're gonna start sharing them on our facebook page if you're good with it absolutely um so people can start digesting what it is turkey management uh overall i guess we're going to sum this up there's kind of a there were the golden days what everybody i grew up where it was like tons of turkeys in the in in the ozarks um but there's been a lot of people talking about the decline Mm -hmm. of turkey populations yes um and so we're sitting at the show. There's 50,000-plus people that walk through these doors, and they all go through the, uh, the vendor booths, and they're picking out turkey calls, and all these people are talking turkey season. But if we don't have the research like you guys are doing um, to understand how to continue to improve habitat and find ways to make sure that we have populations of turkey, all the calling, all that stuff's going to end because we have naught. to. It's yeah. all for naught. We have to apply. There's, there's got to be that research aspect, then the education, and the application. Sure. Of sure. all this great information. Yes. I'm ready. I'm ready. Sure. Yeah. So let's hear, kind of your going into your spill yesterday, focused on broods. And, and, and a quick background of education where you're at right now as well 
professionally. <laughs> yeah, my, we just sat down and started recording. My, my background. Let's yeah, hear yeah, about yeah, just, you. Just real quick. Yep. Yeah, so I, I grew up in the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia. Oh, uh, no kidding. Dirty I feet. I grew up in Stafford really, County. Running yeah. around with a BB gun, chasing everything. Um, ended up at Virginia Tech as an undergrad. Got an opportunity to go to graduate school at Mississippi State and stayed there to study turkeys. And, and honestly, I was interested in turkeys, but not that much. Right. I was a deer guy and started working with this bird and became fascinated with their ecology and their management. Stayed on and did a Ph.D., and I've been studying turkeys ever since, so 25 years now. Awesome. Mm. Wow. So now you're stationed out of? University of Georgia. Okay. I've been there for about eight years. Awesome. Awesome. Um, In a daily daily basis, just conducting research, working with grad students to continue to learn population dynamics, everything about a wild turkey. Yeah, and my job depends on the support of of state agencies that are willing and interested to fund research on this bird because they they recognize the relevance of this bird to their their economic engine. Absolutely. So... Thankfully, they contract me to hire grad students and do the type of work that that you saw presented yesterday. Yeah, so a little bit going to try to stay focused here. My uh, ADHD chasing squirrels and rabbit trails is going to be a little bit difficult because I've I've watched your posts for, I don't know, months now. Um, And so it's like, oh, I want to talk about predators. Oh, I want to talk about your fire research. But today we're talking about your seminar yesterday. Okay. So give us kind of a introduction to what what researcher you discussed yeah so yesterday we discussed brood ecology in, in, in the southeast and basically kind of the logic was we've seen this precipitous decline in poll per hen ratios it's been ongoing for decades kind of right under our nose kind of smacked us in the face about seven or eight years ago that we've got a problem we're now down around one poll per hen across most of the southeast yeah. now um that's not sustainable right we came from about three and a half pullets per hen if if that gives you some perspective Um, so it's either and or poor nest success coupled with poor brood survival we think Mm -hmm. so we've already shown that nest success is quite a bit lower than it was years ago and now we needed to talk about brood so basically what we did was we marked over 400 birds we ended up with about 100 broods that we tracked across a number of sites, all pine-dominated forest, and we ended up finding that um, two, two take-homes. One is only 7% of nest on the landscape produce a poult that survives to 28 days. If you Oof. think about that, that's very scary. The probability of one of those birds becoming that tom that you hunt or that hen that you see is is really low. Especially when you think about clutch size, 10, 12, maybe right. 15 eggs. Right. That's a lot that right. are dying. The other the other big take home to me is that broods that move farther after they hatch die. So their their survival is dramatically lower if they have to move a considerable distance during those first few days after they hatch. And that distance, as you may remember, was about 800 yards-ish. Yeah. Bottom line is, if you think about it, first few days, if they have to move more than about a thousand yards from that nest site, chances are they're going to suffer mortality, and, and not just one pole, but the entire brood will be lost. And I think it's important to to discuss 
why may they be moving? What, what are they seeking as soon as they're hatched? Go into that from just a life cycle standpoint of, you know, the growth rates that they need and what are they seeking out specifically? Yeah, so, you know, this bird, they're, they're car- carnivores when they're hatched. I mean, <laughs> really. Yeah. They, they, I, I thought it was interesting. Yesterday you were referring to them as predators. They, they, oh, they yeah. are. Typically when you say predator, you automatically think, the coyote that everyone hates mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. raccoon that everyone hates, but you're using it in yeah, a tur- sense that a turkey's Turkeys, when they predator. hatch, they need insects, yeah. and they're going to move to wherever those insects are available, and if they're not, they're going to keep moving. So our assumption is that these broods are moving longer distances because they have to. If they were encountering enough insects, they wouldn't move those distances. And if you if you look at the news a lot of people don't pay attention to this but there's been research showing global declines in insect abundance and diversity sure. yeah and that has to affect this bird has yeah. to down the line absolutely it, now it's happening well, right. what i'm saying is like down the down yeah, the yeah. Trop- tropic line exactly right? so this bird needs to eat constantly as they're growing every day they need to eat constantly so if they're not eating constantly then their growth rate is lower and if their growth rate is lower, it's cumulative. You think about if they get behind day one, and then they get behind day two, and they get behind, it may only be a little bit behind, but by the time they're 28, they make it to 28 days, they may be a little smaller, they may be a little short, whatever. But the bottom line is that every day of that early life affects their lifetime fitness. It may just be a, a small effect. So it's a real cause for concern with us because broods, you know, it's, it's hard enough to hatch. Sure. Yeah. Well, then if you if you get sucker punched after you're one of the 20% that actually hatch, if you get sucker punched and now you have to travel 1,000 yards, you know, to find foraging areas, then it indicates to me we may we have a habitat issue in the southeast. We're lacking brood cover, and the birds are showing us that. I know a lot of your, your work obviously is located right there southeast, but this is something that's being seen in the Northeast as well as probably the Midwest in some some regions. Oh, absolutely. I mean, th- this isn't just a Southeast issue. It's not just in a pine-dominated system. Mm-mm. It's everywhere. Yeah, no. And I mentioned this yesterday that the same trends that I showed for the Southeast are, are common across the East, Northeast, and, and several states in the Midwest. They may not as be as dramatic mm-hmm. as what I showed in the Southeast, but they're there. And... This morning, there was in the plenary session, we were discussing states that haven't gotten to the point where their birds have kind of reached a, a, a point where they're seeing declines, but they're going to. Sure. This is yeah. coming nationwide. This, yeah. this is going to happen because we don't manage landscapes like we did 25, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, this this year alone, Kansas has lowered this bag rate mm-hmm. down to one bird. Right. On the eastern On side the of the state. Yeah. Yep. 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 And uh, it's just, you hear this ongoing Arkansas people. Of course, we live in Missouri, so we hear a lot of Arkansas people griping about mm-hmm. lower, lower, and everyone has something to blame. But sure. overall, what would you say is just the decline is just poor habitat? I, I liken it to a th- death by a thousand cuts. Okay. You know, this bird, clearly, as I discussed yesterday, from a brood perspective, there isn't a habitat issue, but there's yeah. there are other habitat issues. This is a bird that requires a diversity of habitats in their annual cycle. They need hard mass during the winter. Yep. Well, what do we see happening to hardwood forests throughout the eastern U.S.? Mm. They're disappearing. They're being, um, they're being 
converted to other yep. forest types in the yep. deep south, it's pine. Yep. And we don't see pine being used as brood habitat at sure. all. Yeah. So you're seeing declines in the, the quality and maintenance of open habitats. We don't we don't burn like, you know, as much mm-hmm. as we as we used to. You don't see disking used like you used to. The disturbance regimes that we see now aren't what it, they were years ago. And you see broad expanses of the southeast and eastern United States that look the same. Yeah. From a structural standpoint, they, yep. they just look the same to this bird. Yep. You have predation issues. You know, yep. Turkeys are dealing with predators now in a way that they've never had to deal with before. There's more of them. There's species like, like, like coyotes that we, we talked about you know, that may not eat a lot of turkeys, but they certainly harass turkeys. Yeah. That has to have some consequence. Sure. We don't understand what it is. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just, it really is death by a thousand cuts. We, we, we think, you know, there's some issues with, with how we might be harvesting this bird. You know, there's a lot of managers that feel like perhaps seasons are, are too early in some situations. Right. You know, your state went through regs changes trying to minimize the harvest of, of toms early in the season mm-hmm. you know the, the kill one the first More week breeders, type right. yep. um, yeah so there's a lot of grappling and talking amongst agencies because in my opinion we had a problem right under our nose and because we were still harvesting a lot of turkeys nobody paid attention mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it's like whoops we need to do something, and we that was need to backpedal a little bit. Yeah, we need to we need to back up and move forward, and I think that's what you're seeing with a lot of agencies now is they realize there's an issue. Hunters realize there's sure. an issue. Not yeah. everywhere, yeah, yeah. but you're, you know, some places pockets. have plenty of birds, and and exactly what you just said. Turkeys live in pockets. They live in these pockets on the landscape, and those pockets aren't all the same. You may have places that have a lot of turkeys, and they're doing quite well, and then one county over. You have turkeys that are in a different pocket, if you will, that aren't doing well. Mm-hmm. Whether it's land use changes, you know, predator communities that are kind of subtly changing across the landscape, you know, tack all that together and you, you have death by a thousand cuts. So let's define, getting back into your, into your seminar, let's define nesting cover. What would you define adequate or quality nesting cover? Yeah, so we used to. If you, if you look in the science literature, it says, well, cover that a bird can hide in, basically. Anything yeah. one yard or less, uh, grassy, shrubby, you know, down debris they can put their nest against. And what we see in reality is this bird will nest just about anywhere. Yeah, it's very similar the, to what Frank and Kyle discuss on the quail. With quail, yeah. I mean, they'll, the, they'll nest in many different substrates. Any, any, anything. Yeah. And, and we see no link which is something that's going to be discussed in the session this afternoon. No link between vegetation and nest survival. We see zero. And the reason is this bird is plastic. They just nest, you know, they nest everywhere. Mm -hmm. And and so I don't think there's a such, there is a thing such as ideal nesting cover. Gotcha. Or or I guess a lack of nesting cover at that point. Right. I think the issue becomes that we've always looked at it like, turkeys need to hide yep right and the more i've thought about it in the past decade the more i think we've looked at it incorrectly perhaps this bird needs to see so think about understory in a forest and and where they would nest this bird 
makes a living by being able to use its eyes. That's yeah. the primary means of defense. Well, if a bird has to chalk herself up in a dense stand of blackberry and sweet gum, she can't see. Yeah. So perhaps nesting cover for this bird should be viewed in that can she hide and still see, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. So it needs to be you know, knee high or something like that to where if she senses something, she can stand up and go, oh, I'll use that periscope of a head and there's a bobcat coming. Yeah. And I, a lot of the nest sites that we see, that's not the case. And, and we see some really wonky nests, nests sure. that are in places like, what in the world was she thinking doing that? <laughs> and she hatches. Yeah. You know, and then, then we, we go to a place that I would look at and go, that's perfect. Like, that's beautiful. And it failed. Yeah. So I don't, to answer your question, I don't personally think, and the data, our data support Supports this, that. I don't think there is an ideal nest. Gotcha. I think maybe we've looked at it. And it, it, do you think that's because they just are very adaptive or because, as we mentioned pre-show, that they're trying to spread out and not nest? You yeah. don't see a hen Clusters. nesting yeah. right next to another hen. Yeah, so what these birds do, and, and we're just – this has been known in the turkey world for a while, but it, it hasn't been really applied to nesting behavior. But So we know they have these dominance hierarchies, right? And we know that these hens that are together in the spring – one starts the breeding process she breeds first and then she goes to nest and as she's going to nest the other hens that are under her like rungs in a ladder they breed so that's why you see you don't see all these birds go to nest at the same time they're they're usually spread out for about a few days so let's just say five hens are breeding with this one group of toms those five hens may start incubating across a two-week period so let's just say well When they do that, they go space themselves in this area. So you don't have, unlike, say, with ducks, where you can literally kick up a duck feet from another nest. You don't see that with turkeys. We see them, if you look at their incubation ranges, they're exclusive of each other. They don't overlap at all. So they may end up recessing, you know, these breaks they take from the nest when they, you know, they go defecate and forage and relax, dust. They may be together when they do that. But those nest sites are like little territories, and they don't overlap. So there is some spacing on the landscape, and and it makes sense to me that that would force some hens to end up in some wonky places. Yeah, yeah. I was going to wonder just by default with the landscape the way it is, you're going to have that at this point. Yeah, and sometimes it works out. It's like, hey, she hatches, and she was in a wonky place. Great. What's the most interesting place you've ever found a nest? Oh, where you're man. like, what in the heck? Oh, we've seen them. Some of the most bizarre that I just couldn't fathom why she why she did it. We had one in Louisiana in a bottomland forest that had flooded. And so it, imagine like backwater flooded, no vegetation. And she was sitting there. I could see her from about 90 yards. Oh, wow. So we walk in trying to figure out where this nest is. And while she's incubating, we don't do that anymore with the GPS work we have. But back in the day, we had to manually, you know, manually track into the bird, and we'd put a little flag and say the nest is about 40 yards over there. You know, we'd get to where we thought we were close. In this case, I could see the bird sitting on the nest. And of course, she flushed because she's like, yeah. "Whoops!" Yeah. We go over there and mark this nest, and it literally. You could see this bird from almost a hundred yards, and that because there was not a stitch of vegetation anywhere around her. <laughs> wow! 
That's why absolutes is, is yeah. when you speak. And it seems like anytime we say something that's absolute, it's like, oh, well, they go and prove us wrong. Like yeah. they're always yeah. going to be nesting in grass or shrubs or somewhere like, nope, she's nesting in the landscaping mm-hmm. of that person's yard or yeah. whatever. Yeah. They're, they're like human beings. They're all different. There's yeah. no such thing as an average. <laughs> I was doing the fawn study in Virginia. We had thermal imaging units. We'd go out mm-hmm. at night. And so we found some turkey nests. One was out in the middle of just, it was just wide open, big timber, just right there in the middle. They just molded up the leaves right mm-hmm. around. She was yep. sitting right there, wide open. One. Another one was right against the roadway, secondary road, and it was a fern. It had grown up like one fern, just kind of canopied over, and she was tucked up right mm-hmm. there. It's mm-hmm. a little mound of a hill. One, of the, around, one of the coolest one ferns I've ever seen was, this was in a, one of our pine sites, Imagine like a 12-year-old plantation, so nothing but pine needles in the understory, not a stitch of green stuff. Mm. She nested in that and hatched a full clutch because there was a little dip in the terrain, and there was a logging road. I mean, you could see the logging road from the nest. It hit her as if she were invisible because any predator walking down that road, unless they winded her, would have no clue she was there, yet you could had it not been for that little you know that little dip she would have been sitting there like the one in louisiana <laughs> but she hatched she sat wow. there for a month with i you know surely things walking up and down that logging road no clue she was there wow it's amazing so what about you know, talking about brood brood rearing cover what l- let's try to define that yeah so, so that's see. easier okay yeah so brood cover has to be open and open doesn't have to be treeless it just needs to be open. So if it's a forest, it needs to be open understory. Something that has bare ground where poults can move around uh, has to have lots of insects. That's the key. Has to have a lot of insects. And the way to produce insects is succulent vegetation. Have to have green vegetation. You guys know this. Anything that will produce green vegetation, disturbance, disking, fire. Um, prescribed fire anything that's going to produce succulent vegetation that will attract bugs that's that's your start and then you're looking for needs to be low growing needs to have escape cover nearby you know things that this bird can run under things they can hop over the first couple of weeks once they're flighted after about two weeks the playing field changes because they can avoid predators very efficiently and if you've ever you know (laughs) If you ever try to walk in on a brood that's three weeks old, good luck. I mean, they can they can haul it and get away from you. But the first couple of weeks, they need that low-growing vegetation with some escape cover they can get under. You that, have a list of, uh, like, some of your species. favorites to see in that area? We actually, I'm trying to, I'm trying to develop a YouTube channel to show this. And I'm, I'm getting close. But we, we video we go to these areas where these birds brood and we take GoPro video. Sure. And it would startle you some of the places these birds end up brooding. And like we were talking about pre-show, is the only reason they would go to some of these what I consider bizarre sites is because they feel the need to. They're brooding in all sorts of places. And some of them look to me like good brood cover. And some look crazy. It's like, why did she walk through this? But she made it. She, you know, they ended up surviving. Um, the ones that I think are picture perfect, you know, at least in the deep south, are bottomland sites, uh, dense canopy, yet also have 
a lush green understory. We've all turkey hunted. If you've turkey hunted in the deep south, you've you've ended up in a bottom where you just thought there's a strutter. He's got to be here. I mean, yeah, like cool season grasses coming in, May apple stuff. Yeah, in tra- riparian areas, yeah. you know, creeks wet. Um, shrubby on the sides where they can climb up and roost at night type of thing and the problem is at least in in a lot of the systems we work in those areas are declining and and i'll give you an example that's it's it's a bit sad but it worked out one of the most frequently used sites on brooding areas on one of our study sites is this lush series of hardwood bottoms that go all over this property 30,000 acre property and most of these broods end up in bottoms that are dominated by Japanese stilt grass Mm. so you have an invasive species that is providing what these hens perceive as the best brood cover that that doesn't tell you that we have an issue we need to address at a broad scale nothing will yeah it it startled me to and, and they're bugs don't don't get me wrong we we went it we go in and where these broods are and we we sample insects and we end up finding a lot of bugs but when i go back and look at some of the seminal works in this field from people that that i idolized frankly as a student they captured a lot more bugs in their at their sites where broods were than we do and it just makes versus non-native yeah. Or yeah. just more sunlight, more, more disturbance. Right. Whatever, whatever. You know, okay. I think a combination of all that. You know, more disturbance back then. Plant communities that were attractive to insects that that don't exist now. And then, like we were talking about, you know, these these global declines in insect diversity and abundance, they're not just happening in obscure places on other parts of the planet. They're happening right here on our landscape. And that has to by de facto affect this species has to affect turkeys absolutely yeah wow um you said something yesterday that kind of really stuck with me moving brood is a dead brood yep let's talk about that yeah so we we found that you know what these birds want to do is right out of the box as soon as those poults are able to, to walk she's gone so if they hatch late in the afternoon She'll hold on until the following morning, and then they're booking it out of there. If she hatches overnight and into the morning, by that afternoon, she's gone. And it places these poults in a really interesting situation because they, they're they scaled to her. And what I mean by that is they have to be able to keep up with her. And in the turkey, if you, if you look back in earlier literature, they can't. If they're getting bugs and they can eat, they grow really fast and they can take off. The problem is you don't want them doing that. You you want her to be able to get away from the nest because of all the, the dangers associated with a hatching clutch. Sight, sound, smell. Once she hatches, she needs to move away as quickly as she can and then let those poults start eating. So what we've seen is that they... They usually move about 200 yards away from the nest right out, right out of the box. First day of hatch, they're gone. And then they have two options. If they're encountering good brood habitat or what they perceive as good brood habitat, lots of bugs, low-growing vegetation, they hang out. And they spend the next few days moving a little bit more each day. But then there are some other broods that they hatch, and all of a sudden, they're gone. They are, they'll literally take two-day-old poults and move them a half mile. Wow. 
and the only reason they would ever do that is they don't perceive that they have quality brood habitat available to them otherwise they'd use it sure. and those broods that's what i meant by a moving brood is a dead brood those broods across the board had lower if not zero survival so if they're moving they're they're dead so how does a manager or a landowner take that information and go okay i want to help the turkeys yeah so in in our study sites and in the conclusion we came up to it was about 800 yards as you remember it's like 800 yards 800 to a thousand yards so from a management perspective what i took out of that analysis was if you think this area is nesting cover let's just say it's dense herbaceous grassy shrubby and you know turkeys are nesting in that area put a dot in the center of it and draw take 800 meters or 800 yards and just draw a circle around that spot that stand and if you don't have something that you can walk through easily that has that you're literally not seeing bugs jumping up around your boots as you're walking as you're walking and doesn't have green, lush, herbaceous vegetation, you have a, you don't have what you need for that bird. She's going to go find a place those poults, or she thinks those poults can use to survive. So that, to me, was a take-home. Draw a circle around every stand that you think is nesting cover or fits the bill for nesting cover, which we've kind of already sure. talked about, can be almost anything. Yeah. So when I started doing that on our study sites, it... it <laughs> it hit me like a brick it was like wow a lot of this landscape is not even it's not even reproductive habitat for this bird they could nest there but they'd have to travel two miles to get to an opening that that's brood cover that to me was startling and it jives exactly with the data that we see it's like well why didn't they go over there it's like well hmm that's not brooding habitat i thought it would be but the birds don't perceive it that way so that, that, that's terrifying when you think about the south. You think about a lot of places, even in the Ozark Mountains or Wachita Mountains, where you see these vast landscapes of timber, solid mm-hmm, timber, mm-hmm. closed canopy. There's not much underneath. It's like if a hen, if there's a group of population, uh, a population of turkeys here, and they don't necessarily nest together, another one's got to go find nesting somewhere that they maybe not have been that much, Mm -hmm. and then they're going to have to find brood rearing cover adjacent to that, maybe in a landscape they've not been to. And, yeah, no wonder turkey numbers are declining. Talking just timber, but we can't forget about just crop fields that are just under, and it's just dirt. That's massive areas in the upper midwest and midwest and i kind of liken if you think about turkeys i i kind of perceive their populations across the landscape as a bunch of light bulbs and what we've seen is these light bulbs get dimmer in some places and they get brighter in others Mm -hmm. but in most of the south the bulb gets a little bit dimmer every single year so they're not producing as many poults. Those poults aren't surviving. It may not be this dramatic change from year to year, but what's happening is just a little, no pun intended, pecking away at these flocks. And to what we've just discussed, if, if there's even a, a, a small percentage change in the availability of nesting habitat and a small change in the availability of brood habitat at, some, at one of those light bulbs, just one light bulb it gets dimmer and then the adjacent light bulb 
might get brighter, may get dimmer. What you see is across the southeast is the picture gets darker and darker and darker. Does that make sense? In oh, other yeah. words, the light sure. bulbs are getting dimmer, but they're not going out. They're not blinking out. Yeah. So we perceive it as, well, we have turkeys everywhere. We, we do. I mean, we have turkeys. I mean, they, they're doing fine in, in many places. But the light bulb's getting a little bit dimmer. It feels like the Bob White quail during the 70s or 80s where it was like there were still numbers, but it was like starting to notice a downward mm-hmm. trend. And now, I mean, it's not a great conversation to have well, about there's, there's overall population. populations and quail, different species, but there's there's areas that are really hot and there's mm-hmm. areas that are they're just no more. Yeah, they're the, none. And, and, you know, I I hear the quail analogy used, and the one big difference between a turkey and a quail is uh, outside of their size, obviously. Turkeys are much more plastic than quail. Yeah, absolutely. They, Very and they are so. big birds. <laughs> Thankfully. That, yeah, Ooh. they, can, they yeah. can eat a lot of stuff. They, you know, they can become omnivores, carnivores. They're big. They're strong. They're resilient. But we, we as managers, still, still have to provide the resources so, they need. So, how does a land manager manage on a broad scale? Say a landowner's got 200 acres, or 300 acres, or 1,000 acres. To um, that is a lot of timber. How are they going to take this information and go? Okay, let's make a change. You, unless you own large tracks, large yeah. being two, three, four, five thousand plus acres. Yeah. You don't have a turkey population. You don't have a light bulb, if yeah. you will. Yeah. You're sharing the light bulb with all your neighbors. So I tell people, understand what this bird needs starting January one through December thirty one. It's like he's listening to the podcast yeah. before. I like that. Um, <laughs> you know, winter covers hardwood areas. Mm-hmm. They're going to move a lot. You're going to lose your turkeys. And they're going to go on somebody else's property, again, unless you own huge swaths. And that's fine. Yep. They are going to come back to areas, and they're going to reproduce these turkeys basically use what's called an exploded lek. And all that means is you take like a prairie chicken lek and throw yep. a bomb in it. So instead of having all the males in one spot displaying, you have pockets, light bulbs yep. of males that are displaying. And there's some hens that breed with them, and that's it. So you got these little pockets of birds, and those pockets don't live on you. They don't live just on, on your property unless you own a lot of acres. So understand that you need to be thinking this bird is probably going to leave your, ha- your area, end up on an adjacent landowner's property, and then either return or not. Yeah. And I talk to people all the time. They're like, well, I own 500 acres, and I have birds in the spring, but I don't ever see them in the summer. Or, yeah, you know. sure. And That's why co-ops would be a great exactly. thing. Exactly, Co- co-ops. And, and I, I always ask people, well, do you have nesting cover? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I've got plenty of stuff, sticks, dense, great. Do you have any openings? Nope. I've got a couple food plots. That's, that's not yeah. an opening yeah. to a turkey. I mean, a brood's not going to use a half-acre food plot for 28 days. Yeah. She's going to go somewhere else. Yeah. If that puts her on your neighbor's property, then that's why you don't see any birds in the summer. Uh, yep, for you know, sure. I, t- I talk to people that are like, well, I see lots of turkeys in the, wa- in, the, in the fall and winter, and then come March, they're gone. Yep, you don't have reproductive habitat that's going to hold this bird, so start thinking about who does around you and work with them. Gotcha. What about – this is a question I get a lot um, – we talk about great quality habitat for turkeys, and but then the question always comes up, 
well, how come the turkeys are doing so good on so-and-so's dairy farm? Yeah, yeah. What, what do you think there is about the cattle operation or the dairy farm that makes that farm, even though the habitat may not be as good, there's always turkeys there? They are going to go to openings, period. And I, I hear this a lot, too. It's, it's ironic you said that. And I caution people when I hear that. You don't know where those turkeys came from. They may have come from quite a ways off to use your dairy farm. You may end up attracting birds from all over the landscape that would not be there would your neighbors manage for their openings and early successional habitat better than they're currently doing. So I I caution people about, (laughs) hey, they're all on this, they're all in these cattle farms. Well, maybe they're there because they feel like they have to be rather than being where they would prefer to be. If that yeah. makes sense. And if, it, if just like the Japanese stiltgrass analogy, if they have to go to overgraze fescue because they feel like that's where they have to be, makes you kind of go. That's an issue. Ooh, that's a big yeah, issue. That's, a, that's, that's an a, issue. That's a red flag. There's yeah. grasshoppers out in, in most hay fields or cattle pastures, but to what density? Can yeah. it be improved? Right. Absolutely it can be, but not in mature timber. Right. Or closed canopy timber right. is not, it's not yeah. improved. Yeah, and what you'd see in most forest communities is – they're not managed effectively for this bird. No. They just aren't. They're, the canopy's too closed. There's not enough disturbance. The stem density's too high. You can have mass production, great mass production, in a woodland or savanna settings. You Absolutely. You don't have to have closed, closed canopy. canopy timber to have acorns. Yeah. Right, right. You don't have to. And that's what that dynamic diversity in the landscape of uh, grasses, forbs, trees you, you can have all that in those right. landscapes those I, so a managed forest is what you would you absolutely know, some some sort of disturbance we're getting some sunlight coming down you're getting some more a- annuals more perennials filling in later on you continue to burn so we're harvesting timber we're thinning timber we're burning absolutely i mean in depending on the forest community in some forest turkeys are inextricably linked to disturbance yeah. If you're not disturbing the forest community, you're not benefiting this bird. Yeah. Or, not everywhere. But or CRP is too rank in warm season grasses. Right. right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, this bird needs disturbance that's going to maintain vegetation communities that are low-growing, producing bugs, producing nest sites. If, it, if you're walking through the forest and you see a sweet gum understory, and that's, that's it, bears. you're doing something wrong. Or Chinese yeah. privet. Or Chinese privet, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh man, have you uh, <clears throat> have you gotten to do Hold any? I gotta turn Chad's Chad's Chad stepped I'm in. Here. in. <laughs> There's a man in the back. <laughs> have you gotten to do any research on like patch burn grazing areas? Have, has, has that been anywhere? And I have not. That was no. something we were discussing yesterday after listening to your seminar on whether that would affect because you know the the bug factor with the cattle. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder how that would affect where it's managed grazing in amongst the burning mm-hmm, and stuff, mm-hmm. how that would, because, you know, it's it's generally a little more open underneath right, and right. stuff. It's like, how, I wonder how that would contribute. There, there's, I have not done work in that arena, but it's to me it's common sense yes. that that would be a beneficial way of managing those type of plant yeah. communities because you don't, as you know, with cattle, unless you overgraze it, you, you do end up with a kind of a, a heterogeneous type plant community and then you get the cows out and you let it regenerate and, and you have what we're looking for. But as you know, a, a lot of 
of producers don't do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. They're going Unfortunately. Intensive, yeah, <laughs> intensively graze it and then move to another pasture. Oh, yeah. they move their cattle where you're at? <laughs> <laughs> when it gets to be really short grass. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's a forcing, so that's just yeah. not by, by management yeah. style. Yeah. Oh, yeah. gosh, yeah. man. They, yeah. We can go on for days cows, on that. The cows probably busted but, the fence and busted moved them. themselves. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, man. That's you – know, we hear that – so I have an ag background, um, and talking in the regenerative ag where people are still getting into rotational grazing, they're talking a lot about, um, yeah, I guess we need to start wrapping up. We've got another appointment you have to go to, but you hear that a lot. There's a buzz on these landscapes. There's a lot more insects, and it mm-hmm. makes you wonder, okay, if a person uses cattle correctly, they create a disturbance as well as attract more insects mm-hmm. through manure and just and We found that with Kyle and Frank in their research as well. Absolutely. From a nesting success, brood rearing, it's increasing quail numbers when managed appropriately. Cattle are. Yeah. Same thing can likely be said from a wild turkey standpoint. Yeah, yeah. and somebody, somebody came up to me after the talk yesterday and asked, are all insects created the same when it comes to a turkey? And the answer is no. Mm-hmm. They don't. If they're eating every kind of insect out there, something's amiss they they will select spiders and different species grasshoppers things that move in mm-hmm. front of them because they're they're very visual poults are very yep. visual they see something and you know i mean turkeys Certainly. are visual right yeah so they you know when they're foraging they see something move and that's where they direct their attention well if there's nothing moving then what are they going to eat they're yeah. not going to just root around and go find something. So yeah. a lot of insects that you would see on the landscape really aren't turkey food. Sure. They're just insects. You know, no offense to bug people, but <laughs> <laughs> they have some other role. Yeah, they have another role that oh, I don't man. understand. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, I won't profess to. So. Well, we can't thank you enough for stopping yeah, by. Absolutely. And, and You're welcome. Man, we're going to have to have you on in the future with all your other research that we didn't Definitely. get to talk about. I'd be glad to. Describe all to. you name it. We'll, we'll have you back on. So, sir, be appreciate glad it. To. Yep. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, guys, next up to bat for the Big Rendezvous National Wild Turkey Federation National Convention, we have on another researcher, uh, Brett Collier from LSU. Yes, we'll try not to talk about the national championship today. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Keep it on even turkeys. Think, I wasn't even thinking about that. I, will, I, I, I wore an LSU time. shirt yesterday here, and that's not a single turkey question. Like, well, what about Joe Burrow? <laughs> I could care less. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to talk about habitat, turkeys, all things diversity, and anything else you want to chat about Native with your landscapes. research. Fan- yeah. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. So we sat through a seminar of yours today. <laughs> unfortunate for you <laughs> <laughs> and we t- you talked a lot of different things but let's go ahead and try to get our viewers to understand what it was you covered so uh, today I-, I was asked by the national wild turkey federation to give a talk uh, about what makes a turkey have a successful nest at, at the end of the day um from a-, a turkey a professional turkey biologist standpoint um the kind of missing link in all the science that we do and all the knowledge that we have and the limitation for turkey population growth across the United States is that nest success or the percentages of nests that actually hatch one poult um, is about 20%, which means that eight out of every 10 nests uh, die, you know, gets predated typically 
Um, and the discussion that I kind of outlined today was some of the issues that historically we've had from a scientific perspective on what we thought drove nest success and, and impacted nest success, and then some of the, the new information we're garnering uh, from the birds and changes in technology that we've had to kind of better evaluate how nests that are successful succeed and what potential things may be limiting nest success. That was the, the really short version of a very long talk today. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was very interesting. You're talking, you know, we, we, we had Mike on earlier. Not sure how we'll drop it because we may put him at the second half of this. Because Well, then we had we Mike could, on later is probably where we'll go. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So you went from nest research and then he went into brood rearing. Yes. And, and, and so yes. basically we have we're going in a life cycle of a, or the mm-hmm. beginning stages of a turkey's life. Um, basically, kind of explain why that's important for us. Sure. Why it's important that we should care about the success rate of a nest. Uh, absolutely. So th- to the average everyday turkey hunter, and I'll, I'll use my dad as an example. Um, my, Just throw my, him under the bus. I'll throw him under time. the bus. I'm sorry, Dad, <laughs> you're going to hear this and be mad at me. Um, you know, my father is an avid hunter. He, he's hunted white-tailed deer. He grew up hunting pheasants and quail. I got him into turkey hunting about 15 years ago. Um, he knows absolutely nothing about turkey biology. Um, but what he does know how to do is use a shotgun. Mm-hmm. And my job as a scientist is I'm the backstop. So I, I, I'm the guy or one of the guys with my state agency personnel that I work with. And our responsibility is to maintain sustainable turkey populations for aesthetic enjoyment and recreational harvest in my state and a great many states. Um, And for every turkey that gets harvested, a turkey has to replace it. And the scientific field of turkey biology, our kind of bottleneck, is and has always been the period of reproduction. Because that's whenever we get, that's when we get more turkeys. Um, in, in a perfect world, every time a, a, a female wild turkey, a hen, lays a clutch, you know, about 11 eggs, then you want 11 babies. But that's not really true. So to put it in a, a kind of a raw percentage terms, um, we're talking about a bird that has a 40-day life cycle wholly tied to reproduction. Um, they lay about one egg a day for around 12 to 14 days, depending upon they skip a day in between. And then once the eggs are all laid, they incubate those eggs for about 28 days. There's a little variability in there, but so basically you've got about 12 days of laying eggs and then about 28 days of sitting on the eggs. And when you think about how big a turkey's range is, and I use this analogy today, Um, A female wild turkey has a range of a few thousand acres. Um, And if you were to put yourself in a a house that's about 2,000 square feet, she effectively spends that month of incubation, that uh, 28 days of incubation, sitting in her downstairs bathroom and never leaving it. Mm -hmm. Even when she moves off to feed, she's still in the bathroom. So she's in this very constricted range space, and at best, she's going to get two shots at it. So if she, her nest isn't successful the first time, she's probably going to try and re-nest one more time. Um, so now you've got this bird that is stuck effectively all day long, all night, 
for 28 straight days, only leaving the nest site to go defecate and maybe forage or get water a little bit. Um, sometimes these birds don't leave the nest site for two or three days in a row. Uh, sometimes they make what are called recess movements. Um, well, they'll move off a couple hundred meters, eat real quick something, maybe be gone for an hour and come back. Um, <clears throat> recess movements are, are uh, kind of tied to foraging, but they're also tied to uh, thermoregulatory activities of the nest. They've got to keep the eggs at a certain sure. temperature. Um, so basically this bird is paying attention to this little spot on the landscape for about 28 days consistently she's there and then for about 40 days all told during that time frame th that bird has to actively maintain that nest turn the eggs keep them warm and pretty much everything else on the landscape wants to eat that nest or her um and and predation is uh, we typically talk about um, predation in the context that we were talking earlier about catching predators and does it have any impact. Um, and I don't, I'm not going to give a good answer to that. I'll, we'll go down that in a minute. But <laughs> what causes turkey nests to fail is something eats them. Uh, typically what you get are, when you put cameras out on nests, uh, what you see are somebody has a sexy picture of a fox at a nest or you know, there'll be a bobcat or there'll be a coyote or, you know, feral pig seems to be the new thing that everybody says. Right. Um, it's snakes. I mean, the, the, the primary predator of nest ground, of almost all ground nesting birds is snakes. Now, I don't know if that percentage is 50% of all the nests that fail are snakes or 30% or, you know, 65%. I don't know if a snake predates a nest and then a feral hog just comes and cleans up afterwards. Right. Um, but what we do know is, is that most of the things that are predating nests are not eating the turkey, the female turkeys. The hen herself. Yeah, the hen, are, most of the time. So we looked at, uh, over about the last four or five years, we've monitored over 500 females on nests. And only about 10% of the time are those females killed during the nesting period. And, and sometimes they're not killed by the standard predator. I mean, everybody typically thinks bobcats and coyotes, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, raccoons not very rarely going to kill a turkey. It's not going to be a possum. Um, owls? Owls yep. wreak havoc on turkeys yep. a lot of time. Barred owls and, and great horned owls, they fly and take their heads right off. Um, but you can usually find the hen on the nest or maybe she's scavenged after that. Um, but only about 10% of the time does nest loss is the same as female loss. So the other 90% of the time that a nest fails, um, something had to eat the nest. Snakes are a big part of that. And there's no way to manage for snakes. So everybody, yeah, I mean, right? Yeah. There's, I mean, you, what are you going to do, go out and catch rat snakes in the woods? Uh, it's probably not that useful. Um, so what managers do is they try to create usable space. We want to provide turkeys with the optimal amount of choice so that they can find yes. what they need on the landscape or what they think they need. Um, and, you know, the state agencies and the Forest Service and work real hard on doing that on public lands. And then private, man, private landowners, there's a, you know, a little different vibe because they sometimes don't have the resources. Um, I mean, I don't have a whole bunch of tractors yep. to use on my farm in Illinois. I mean, I've got a drip torch and a flapper, but that's about it. A um, couple tractors. Um, so, you know, what we preach at those uh, scales is you're basically managing for diversity is really what we're getting at is you want to provide the optimal amount of vegetation community so that the birds can potentially find what they need. Um, but once we get into reproduction, I mean, it's, it's really a, it's a, a, 
dynamic and a really complex question because how a bird behaves affects whether its nest is successful or not. You know, if, if we can get a nest, uh, right now, if we can get a nest to 22 days, then that female will hunker down and she won't move for the next six days. Why and, do you think that is? That Because um, you, you mentioned that in the yeah. presentation. You said that 22 days, there was 100% nest success after, after that point. between that 22 to 28 day period. Right. So, so females, uh, I don't want to say are conspicuous because they're, they're, they're built to be non-conspicuous, mm, right? Right. To predators. But they're still conspicuous on the landscape. Sure. And everything eat tur- eats turkey nests, right? But for some reason, and it's not for some reason, so backing up, about 75% of your nests fail before day 14. Mm-hmm. So you get two weeks into the, you know, a bird having a nest, 75% of those nests are going to fail. They're just, something's going to eat them, and it's done. Um, and then there's this window from about day 14 to about day 21 or 22 where the birds tend to spend a little bit more time on the nest, but not much. But then something we think, we think, because it's hard to know what's going on inside a turkey's, sure. you know, little pea-sized brain. <laughs> we, we think that something clicks and they're like, I'm in the home stretch. Mm. I need to put all of my resources into hatching this nest. And that's interesting to think about because female wild turkeys will abandon a nest under almost any threat of predation. They will not defend their nest against something that will eat them. So if a bobcat comes blowing in, that turkey is gone. Right. Fox, other than that one Goulds in Arizona (laughs) that you guys saw today, a fox, gone. A coyote, gone. But they will bow up on snakes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen hens fight with six-foot indigo snakes in South Texas. We've seen hens. Yeah, I mean, they'll they'll peck the the tar out of rat snakes, Mm -hmm. um, and then they'll line their eggs up and push them back into the nest bowl and and continue incubating. Um, So a turkey always chooses to live over to reproduce. That probably plays a little bit of a role. We're not sure how much of a role yet. Um, but, but the real rub, and, and I know you guys are going to ask this question, so I'll preemptively say it. Um, well, why don't we just do predator management, right? Um, <laughs> well, we wouldn't say yeah, that. Yeah. Not, not necessarily that. us. All right, a so lot of people are wondering How about this? this? I, I'm sure your <laughs> listeners are saying, well, why don't we just catch all the predators on the landscape? Right. Um, and the, the issue is that with that is um, you can't. Yeah. Uh, uh, predators fill a void. The, the more that you catch, the more that you're going to keep catching. Um, now, there, there has been a lot of really good work done on ducks. Uh, mm-hmm. Delta waterfowl is a leader in this type of thing. And where they go in and they remove all the predators and they put up fences. And miraculously enough, if you go to two acres or nine acres and you trap everything out, you know, nest success goes up. But I don't know how you trap out crows. Right. Yeah. Or hawks. Well, and see, <laughs> what I'm thinking while you were talking about this of we talk about snakes being yep. so high well if we're removing all of these other predators they're gonna eat snakes snakes aren't so getting eaten snakes yeah. are gonna i mean it's it's one of those that we don't a lot of people normally don't think in terms of they don't think through the, the remove one predator 
may increase another predator yes, population. Yes, there's a, it's a, there's a predator release hypothesis, I think is what you're talking about. That's way too nerdy for your <laughs> listeners. <laughs> okay. But, you know, but it, it goes, so there was a really interesting thing that came up the other day, and I know we're at the NWTF convention, but it popped up on the QDMA website, and they were looking at coyotes. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I always tell, people always ask me, how much damage do coyotes do to turkeys? And I'm like, eh, not very much. Right. I know, eat some eggs, and, you know, if they can get a hold of a female, you know, a hen or a uh, a gobbler they will, but, you know, they're not running through the woods trying to no. eat coyotes. And they published this study that was done, uh, I think, out of the University of Georgia and a few other places, and they found no avian DNA in all the coyote scats that were collected. All across right. the entire year, there was no avian DNA. So that means they sure weren't, I mean, it was mainly deer, right? Deer and I think they were eating a bunch of berries and vegetation sure. and, some, yeah. you know, that kind of Rabbits, stuff. Rabbits, rodents. Yeah, that, that kind of jazz. You know, there was no turkey in there. Um, and when I try to explain that to people, I, and I think that, you know, coyotes get a bad rap because everybody sees coyotes during deer season yeah, and, yeah. you know, oh, we got to shoot all the coyotes and save the turkeys. Um, and, you know, maybe there's some truth to a little bit of removal might save a turkey here or there. Right. Yeah. But landscape wise. Yeah. Landscape, you know, the, the scale that scientists work on and that managers manage on is not a scale that localized trapping has an impact. Correct. Um, so. When you get into that situation, it goes into some of the things we talked about today. Why are some nests successful and others aren't? Predators probably move through the landscape in a fairly random process. Um, you get predator satiation at certain times. You know, whenever whenever fawns are hitting the ground, coyotes are not hunting anything else. Yeah. They're eating fawns. So, um, you know, as we think about where turkey nests are at in the landscape, there are probably as there are areas where turkeys don't want to be on the landscape, there are probably areas that predatory species don't want to be on the landscape. And if we can identify vegetative communities that are less conducive to predation activity, then the creation and management of those might be an additional alternative to the toolbox that turkey biologists already have. Increasing um, the, the rate of reproduction. Increasing the hatches. rate of reproduction. And, and, you know, people don't think about People hear 80% and they don't really realize what that means because it's not just 80% of the nests fail. It, it means for every 100, and if you think about the math on this, very simply, you have 100 nests, 20 of them successfully hatch. Only two or three of those are successfully going to bring one poult to 28 days old. That's what the numbers say right now. Wow. That, that hurts. Yes. Yeah. That's bad. It does because, and, and poults die from everything. I mean, literally, yeah. you look at them wrong and they fall over, right? It's not, it's not always predation. But get ran you, over by UTV. Ran over by UTV. <laughs> once you get poults into trees, the survival rate for the broods, I guess I, I should talk about broods versus individual poults, but once the brood gets to about 14 days, you know, somewhere, you know, 12 days, 16 days, and they start roosting in the trees, their survival rate skyrockets. Right. I mean, it shoots almost to one after that point. So there's that critical period of about the first two weeks where a lot of us are spending a lot of time looking at vegetation. So it's hard to identify what vegetation is good for turkey nests because turkey nests, they put nests everywhere, right? right? But broods are a little bit different. Historically, kind of the way we thought was that the female would take the the poults someplace she thought foraging was good 
and kind of over time, we've learned that what the female is really doing is she's keeping the poults between the white lines and the poults are actually looking for food and they're kind of leading where they go. So they find an area that's really good and they peck around at it. So what we've done is with the advent of uh, being able to put GPS units on turkeys, yep. um, which uh, I think Mike probably talked about it and, and I will, be, we're able to actually say, okay, hen 1632 was right here. We know she was brooding and she spent three hours at this spot. And then we, we will go out there with a GoPro and a whole bunch of stupid science stuff that nobody cares about, and robel poles and cover boards and all that right. kind of jazz. We'll actually evaluate what's there. We'll do insect net sweeps mm -hmm. to see what the density of insects is. And then we can link how poults are moving through the landscape to the vegetative communities on the very fine scale that they're spending the most time in. And some of them, I'll be honest with you guys, whenever we started doing this, some of them were really surprising. In the old days with VHF, you had to chase the bird, right? So you had to go out and follow the beeps yep. and chase. I mean, and there's a great story about a professor sitting on a road in a truck and the graduate students off chasing the bird in the woods and the hen carrying the tag and the poults walk right across the road in front of him while the grad <laughs> students are over there trying to figure out where they're at. Um, yeah. Because he pushed them. Now we're able to be a lot more hands-off. Mm -hmm. So we get a very non-disturbed, raw is a good word, non-disturbed view of what they're using. And, and that's, a, that's a new area for us. Um, because then the, the question comes in, okay, what was here? And I'll be honest with you, we find poults in areas, you know, most people think that field edges, right? Uh, there's, there's usually lots of diversity along a field edge, and poults are using it a bunch. Um, yeah, we see that. We also find them foraging heavily in wet, swampy bottomland hardwoods and running ridge lines. And in early successional, open, fairly open canopy, pine. And occasionally skirting the edges of, you know, 15-year-old loblolly plantations that's got, you know, a, a year's worth of undergrowth under it right. and that kind of thing. Um, so it, it's interesting. There, there's been some really good work on fire lately, mm -hmm. um, in this, especially in the southeast and the Midwest, looking at uh, what impact fire has on where females are nesting at and where they're taking their broods. And we're basically finding that, about a year, females like to nest in what we call like a two-year rough. So it's about two years post-fire. Um, first year post-fire, you get just a little bit of ground vegetation. There's not a lot of woody cover, depending on the patchiness of the fire. But about that second year, it gets pretty thick, right? But they are perfectly happy to take their broods right into that last year's fire or the one that just burned. And, I mean, yep. I've seen pults and fires that have went through before, and they're just out there pecking up dead beetles and stuff Absolutely. like popcorn. You know, I mean, just literally following the fire trail. So there's been some really neat stuff on that that I think is, now that we're getting more fire on the landscape at the right, doing some of these spring burns, um, we're, I think we're going to see some positive response for that at the, the more landscape scale. Well, time out there, because I sure. read on a deep, dark internet that <laughs> spring burns are burning up turkey nests. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and, and don't act like you've never heard that one. Oh, uh, yeah. So um, the, I assume that has something to do with oh, the Facebook, man. right? Um, <laughs> Probably. I've heard about that deep, dark Internet. And that's why I avoided it all. Stay costs. away. Um, just, I just stay away. No, um, that's a good question. Um, a lot of – so here's what I'll say. Um, I can guarantee beyond the shadow of a doubt that at some point a prescribed burn is going to impact a turkey sure. nest. I, I, I guarantee it. Um, we've looked at hundreds of nests in some of the most 
intensively burned environment landscapes in the southeast. Um, places like the Webb Center Wildlife Management Area in South Carolina, right? Um, Cedar Creek and BF Grant WMAs uh, in uh, Georgia. Um, you know, we've looked at stuff on the Jones Center. Um, we've looked at stuff in the Kasachi National Forest in Louisiana, the Angelina National Forest in Texas, right? These are all eastern wild turkey areas where prescribed burning is used actively. Um, I would say that we've probably had, if, and because and, and, I've got a count and I'm trying to think through all of them, maybe two nests out of 500 that we've had to limit our birds on that are impacted by fire. Neither one of them has actually been, I think maybe one was actually burned. Another one, the female put out the fire and continued nesting in a big black patch right, and successfully right. hatched. Um, you know, the benefits, here, here's what I tell people. The benefits from prescribed burning are wide-ranging relative to the, the minute amount of loss because we're not burning in the areas that turkeys are nesting in. Correct. Those, are, those were already probably burnt yes. more recently. These birds are nesting in areas that are, were burned a year or two ago, and most burn regimes are every, say, four years or yes. maybe a little longer, maybe a little shorter in some cases, but usually around every four years. So those, those birds aren't actually nesting where we're doing the fires. And we have to keep that, that rotation moving in the landscape or you're not going to have these areas that the birds generally select these two-year rubs. Um, so, you know, fire gets a bad rap. Um, it shouldn't. Uh, I, I mean, as I said, you know, I guarantee there are times when uh, nests get burned. But, I mean, I had a, I got a great picture one of my graduate students took of a, uh, it was, I think it was a, a rat snake or a coach whip that had been caught up in a fire, and an armadillo had, and it had obviously eaten a turkey nest because it had a whole bunch of turkey eggs in it. An armadillo had caught this after the snake had died in the fire and went and ripped open the snake and was eating the eggs out of the inside oh, of the wow. snake. Yeah, it's That's great. That's funny. So, um, you know, the, the, the positive benefits of prescribed burning on the landscape, sp spring burning, um, far outweigh the, the negative benefits. Um, I mean, opinions vary. Um, I tend to go with what I see and what the data says, and Absolutely. our data says that we're not seeing, we're not wholesale burning up all the turkey nests on the landscape. Um, you know, there are potentially areas where that could occur. Uh, that is, you know, uh, some military bases that are open for hunting, but also have to be for military training. I mean, they get a lot of fire from, yep. you know, artillery M and that munitions. kind of stuff. It just, yep. it just happens, right? But at the landscape scale, we're all also, you have to realize, we're not burning 60% of Louisiana every year no. or 50% of South Carolina. So the, the amount of – I wish we, yeah, I wish we were, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, but the yeah. amount of actual burning we're putting on the landscape is relatively small relative to the amount of vegetation that's out yes. there. So we're probably – yeah, I think sorry. it ties – no, I think it ties in again with what you were saying earlier. Of we tend to look at things on a smaller scale yeah. when – you're looking in a large landscape style, yeah. and it we're we're focusing on this small area when we should be looking at it in a large landscape style. Right, and I and I wish honestly that more people that focus on the small scale realize that you know maybe if you're managing you know 300 acres or 500 acres, I understand some people are leasing from timber company and yeah. there are limitations yeah. there, but you know if you're managing a few hundred acres, it doesn't mean you can't rotate fire through every few years in small patches. Absolutely. And and create that diverse set of habitats, that mosaic on the landscape that yeah. everybody really wants to see. Yeah, because it, it sounds like 
like with nesting, it may be two years post-fire versus brood rearing maybe one year post-fire yep. or immediately after or a fire. Even immediately after, yeah. And so from a land manager standpoint, okay, I've got several units. I can have that across my farm. But managing a population in a region is going to require major fires. Right. And, and you Lots know, of fires. That's one of the things that and I, I said earlier about the difficulty in – downscaling and upscaling right yeah so, i mean my job and the job of all the state agency biologists here that, that work very hard to maintain turkeys is we have to take the ten thousand foot view right yeah we're thinking about sustainability of the resource at the regional or statewide level yeah. and i i want to help you with your 400 acres or your your 1300 acres or your 600 acres i, I want to do things but but my, the questions that we're tasked with answering is for the good of all. Yeah. You know, I and we can downscale some of it, but you, you can't always downscale all of it, right? Yeah. You know, because yeah. if you have 200 acres, you can create all the nesting habitat or vegetation community diversity that you want. And you may not have 50 turkeys nesting on it. You may have one. And yeah. that's great. Yeah. Um, you know, but but we work at a scale. I work I work at a scale, and, and the state people do. That's a little bit higher because we have to because mm-hmm. we're looking out for you know longevity of the species. I mean, I'm a turkey hunter. I love turkey hunting, and I want to be turkey hunting 35 years from now with my kid. You know, when I'm old and retired, and and she's wanting me to go with her. So yeah. that's the that's kind of the target that I have. And and given what we see in the southeast, the northeast, and the Midwest with these kind of concurrent slow declines of our pulp per hen ratios um, for the last 15 or 20 years. I mean, that's kind of the the level that we're trying to work at right now. Absolutely. I think you said, you know, you're looking at that higher, let's say, level space, but there's still all this research, and it's kind of, let's say, our job, we take some responsibility there. If understanding that research, talking to you about it, and then making it applicable to that landowner. So then that whether he has a relationship with his neighbor, they can begin to work collectively mm-hmm. and build out a larger area in which a lot of people are coming together and doing these techniques. Oh, some yes, yeah, some of the most successful areas where turkey rest, or some of the areas where turkey restoration has been most successful is where you have a, a I think they call them cooperatives, uh-huh. yeah. where you have a, a group of cooperatives where you have a, you know, and sometimes the cooperatives are all private landowners, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes the cooperatives are, uh, you know, a, a state agency has a wildlife management area and then they've got, you know, a mine that's got a piece of property right next to them or a private landowner and they they engage in some sort of a relationship that says, okay, we're all going to manage like that. I mean, yep. those have been super successful and the reason that those are i don't know if targeted is the right word but are extremely useful from a turkey management perspective is that a lot of times the original restoration standards and even some of them now require minimum acreage Mm. before they'll even consider putting turkeys on a place you have to have uh and i'll use east texas as an example as they're continuing their restoration efforts right um it's on the boundary. It's on the western boundary of the eastern wild turkeys range. Um, demography is typically much more stochastic or much more variable mm-hmm. on the boundary edges, right? I mean, as opposed to Mississippi and Alabama, it's going to be a lot different in, in Texas, in East Texas. So, you know, they have Jason Harden, the turkey biologist in Texas, has minimum standards. You have to have X number of contiguous acres before we can even and it's got to meet a specific uh, habitat suitability index it's got to have a specific proportion of open land it's got to have this type of forest structure before we even thinks about working with them on restocking and and where they've been most successful 
has been in areas where they've had these cooperative endeavors with either multiple landowners or the, the state, the feds, and other landowners working together to meet those minimum requirements. And then there's typically restrictions on harvest and you have to put fire and, you know, sometimes there's, you know, forestry management practices come into play. Um, but, but yeah, the, the cooperative approach to getting a bunch of people working together is, has always been a, a really good way to kind of go after this. Certainly. Certainly. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. I So just talking once again, try to get back to our to your presentation. We're talking about the overall success. Sounds like I'm a little loud. Oh, the overall success of these nests mm-hmm. and how can we take that as as just a as a landowner and I'm not so much focused. We're all turkey hunters here most likely, mm-hmm. but I'm also a deer guy and a quail guy. Right. How can I because you're also the same. So how yeah. do you blend all that together and not focus just on one species, but the overall land health? Well, the the beauty of the beauty of land management, as as a general rule at any scale, is that typically anything you do that takes land out of a strict monoculture. Yep. and moves it to a, and I, I, I use the word diversity, but I, I'm not sure that's the right word here, moves it to a more... Diversity is always the always right word. Always a good word. You're yeah. welcome here. Okay. Um, <laughs> moves it to a, a vegetative community yes. that has a, a variety of components, right? Um, you know, it is always going to be better. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest struggles we see in the southeast United States with quail, right is that we've we've moved from dirty farming for lack of a better word to you know fence row to fence row right i mean you know there's nothing that grows and unfortunately we've got great programs with nrcs you know and you got cp33 and cp2 and all those um that are starting to help bring some of that back um and what they're doing is they're instead of having this monoculture of okay we're gonna have this open field we're gonna have a hard edge and then we're gonna go to in a tree or whatever it is they're starting to work this idea back in of, okay, that edge needs to be softer. We need to have mixtures of uh, early successional woody components, early successional grasslands. Timber harvest is not a bad thing. Correct. You know, cutting trees. <laughs> trees are a renewable natural resource. Do you um, want to stand up on this table and preach? <laughs> the, 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 the forestry guys in my department would love me. I mean, you know, and you look at things like roughed grouse in Appalachia, right? I mean, we need to cut trees. Um, I mean, it just, it's one of those things. I was having a great conversation with the Kentucky uh, Turkey and Grouse Program Coordinator last week on this. Um, but you want to create that mosaic, might be the right word, um, on at any scale that you can using a variety of methods because there is no, there's no uh, one thing fits all type of vibe for this. There's no panacea. There's no, hey, if I go over here and put a food plot of chufa in i'm gonna have turkeys <laughs> and no that's that. yeah that's, that's not exactly how it's going to work no. i'm not saying that it hurts but you're better off to think about diversity at the local scale and, and going back to your cooperative thing you know you may only have a few hundred acres but you got 10 guys that have a few hundred acres now you're in a few thousand acres and if you start putting this patchwork together on the landscape then it's better for everything i mean Turkeys are generalists, right? Yep. And, and, I, and I, I, I can scream that at the top of my lungs. Turkeys use everything. We find turkeys in the deserts of Arizona. 
We find them in the, the mountains of Montana and Colorado, and we find them in Maine, and we find them in Florida and in the swamps of Louisiana and in the hardwoods of Tennessee, right? They exist everywhere. So that means there's not just one thing that they like. There's a lot of things that they like, but what they don't like is just one thing. That's right. Yeah, that's so right. So you want to make sure that there's enough of a lot of things, and, and that's really what the target should be. Did I, did I We're get doing at something that? right. That's yeah. all I got to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much what we preach. try to preach all the time, every week. Diversity, mosaic, disturbance. Yes, absolutely. And there's, absolutely. A, there's a common trend from the guests that have come on for those listening that it's not just us saying this. There is biologist research, hard science that is saying the exact same thing. It's, yes. it's, not, it's not a silver bullet. Mm. It's, it's not, just nature. And it's just you nature. You don't go to Walmart nature. or a sporting goods store and go buy a bag of diversity. If, yeah. if they sold bags of diversity, I'd know about it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, at which rate do you apply? Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, a lot. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, and you're, you're absolutely right. And the, the beauty of it is, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a professional turkey biologist. That's what yeah. I do all day, every day. You know, with other things, but I mean, turkeys are my passion. I think you know, you guys are interviewing Mike Chamberlain. Yep. He's a professional turkey biologist. That's yep. what he does all day, every day. He and I have divergent opinions on things. But there's probably 150 other scientists out there in the United States that are doing the same thing only from a different angle. Quail biologists studying quail and how diversity of habitats impacts quail. Rough grouse biologists studying deer biologists, water, you know, and they're all coming to the habitat, just straight vegetation people, range people. They're, They're all of the same opinion that the more diverse a landscape is, the more productive a landscape is. And that's the easiest way to explain it. Yeah. Is that if you've got one thing on your landscape, you're growing one thing. But if you've got a whole bunch of stuff on your landscapes, then your, your reach and, your, and the number of species you're touching is a lot higher. Yeah. Um, and and it, it tracks all the way down through things like just as simple things like foraging. If you're a, a fescue monoculture, you're not going to have the foraging items that certain species of bird or you know turkeys or grouse or quail or whatever are going to want to eat but if you've got a whole bunch of diversity of different vegetation communities different age classes of your forest stands different you know densities of edge then what you've done is you've kind of uh, you know opened up the buffet to a wider variety of species right as opposed to you know diversity in a bag I figured it'd be about nine ninety nine a pound, to be honest <laughs> with you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Darn, well, it, is there a buck on the front of it or not? <laughs> there's a buck and there's a quail and there's oh, a wild turkey. It's going to be yeah. expensive then. Yeah. So, and I'm sure I'm sure there's probably about four uh, hunting shows labels on it. Too, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but no, it, it and you know, diver- management for diversity is not a rich man's game, and and that's I mean you know I, I'm a faculty member at a university, right? I'm not saying that we don't get paid well, but, you know, I'm not running around rolling around like Scrooge McDuck, okay? Um, It's pretty easy to implement plans to change and manage and manipulate vegetation 
at the local scale without a lot of effort. I mean, the National Wild Turkey Federation has a, a great setup for going out and assisting people with doing prescribed fire on private properties. Um, there's there's tons of organizations, both state and federal, um, that are, are super handy for getting people out to integrate with us. Your local state agency biologists are, are, are probably the number one resource on this because this is what their job is. Their job is to work with local landowners at the local scale on management that affects, because it all does, that trickles up to regional management. Um, and, and I think that sometimes people are, um, they don't really like to interact with the state biologists. And, you know, I mean, everybody's an expert on the Internet, right? That's right. But, and, and, I mean, that, that's find true. That often. I mean, everybody's yeah. an expert on the Internet, even me. Um, but these state biologists people, these are people, this is their job, is to full-time work and study and learn and help landowners implement these activities. So I think that, you know, if there's any plug that I was to make here is that if we're managing for diversity, then you need to talk to the people that's, whose job it is to do this. Yeah. I, I tend to sit a little bit higher in that hierarchy of pain, I guess, where I think about it from a scale that's broader than the local area. But I recognize, because I am a guy that owns land and has a little local area, that I've got to do stuff here if I'm going to affect the larger scale. Yeah. So, well, I don't know if we're wrapping up here. No, you can talk as whatever. long as you want to. But <laughs> you're in a southeast. Yes. And, and, and we're talking diversity. And there has been a massive change in the last 60, 70, 80 years or so um, and converting a ton of diverse landscapes into monocultures. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know how openly you could speak on it, but from – a future looking out what, what do you see from that and what we're referencing is is, is pine plantations mm-hmm. um oh i knew what you were referencing <laughs> or or monoculture or crop fields, crop fields Agri- too agriculture um no, go ahead please well i, I guess you know one of, the, one of the big things to, to kind of tackle or, or have you considered and pondered ways to be able to discuss alternative methods of managing pine plantations to increase diversity throughout the southeast. Sure. So, um, fortunately, um, we're in a good place on that right now. Um, what people have learned over time, as as learning goes, right? It mm-hmm. always takes a while. Um, the the initial, you know, super intense pine plantation, you know, pack as many trees in as possible, has slowly moved out of that into a okay. We understand the importance of open overstory so that we get early successional vegetation on the ground in, in about any plantation. We, we understand that we need to rotate our ages so we're not just all one age class all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to use smaller plots. And, and the forestry industry has been very proactive in that yeah. um, in a lot of cases. Um, now, there is some legacy impacts on not wanting to burn in pine plantations because it's dangerous in some cases, right? I mean, you can, you know, herbicide works better in those yeah. particular situations. They can go in and spray herbicide and keep the understory down. You're in the south, uh, you know, you get lots of sweet gum regeneration. You got some yopon yes. and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so the, so there is some, some stuff that work there. But the, the good news is, is that moving forward, um, we're starting to see shifts in forestry as a whole towards bringing back longleaf. Mm-hmm. Yep. bringing back fire on the landscape as part of a management regime. And I'm not saying that they weren't there. 
Um, but there, we're starting to see these transitions from uh, loblolly pine plantations to mixed loblolly longleaf plantations that are providing more available vegetation, and they're seeing, in some cases, the same financial benefit mm -hmm. from that. Um, you know, we're starting to see our ability to, to thin at different rates at different times in our loblolly plantations to keep a little bit more open canopy, maybe use smaller plot sizes whenever right. we're planting. And there's some benefit to that. Um, you know, the fortunate thing is there's no bus to throw anybody under, right? I mean, we're all pulling the same way. And, and, our, and forestry industry partners are a great partner because if you think about that, they're some of the few places where you still have significant contiguous land holdings. Yes. Right? Um, and, and those significant contiguous land holdings, in some cases, remain the only unfragmented vegetation communities on the landscape in, in, some, in some regions and some states. They're, they're, they're the blocks of timber that you still have. So um, as we move forward and everything advances, um, Forestry Energy Partners have been, you know, very proactive and it's slowly becoming more proactive, but we all work slowly. Progress, change is slow, progress is slow. Yep. But we'll get there. Absolutely. So overall, you feel very upbeat about the direction of land management? Um, yes, I am. I am upbeat about land management in general. I think that education is key. Yeah. Um, I think that, re regretfully, I think that social media has about as much of a negative impact sometimes as a positive impact because you get you get a lot of uh, divergent views on how individuals should manage their land. And regretfully, not all of them are informed. Yeah. Um, but from a broad scale, we're moving in the right direction. Um, I think. The National Wild Turkey Federation has done a good job engaging with industry and, and federal and state partners um, to address some of these things. Um, I think that, you know, you've got a lot of other agencies that are pulling the same way. NRCS, USDA as a, as a kind of a, a overbody, um, uh, Northern Bob White uh, Conservationist, NBCI is pulling the same yep. way. The Rough Grouse Society is pulling the same way. So there's a lot of people working on the same topics. Um, and, you know, the umbrella for everybody, the umbrella is what we need to do is create sustainable, diverse forests that are recreationally and economically beneficial yeah. spread across the landscape. And that's kind of what everybody's goal is. And, and I think that it comes down to the ability to actively manage on the ground. Um, so I'm very, uh, I'm very upbeat and positive about where we're going from a land management perspective. Um, the, the trick is... How do we take all these land management actions and ensure that they're having the right effect on the right species at the right time? And, sure. and that's what scientists like myself are trying to work on, especially with turkeys. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming by. Definitely. Man, it was a great talk. Keep keep up the great work. It's, no. very, it's very awesome and encouraging to see people like yourself passing out great information that we can all as landowners take out and implement. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to help, and I'm, I'm sure at some point you guys will see something else that's interesting and give me a call, and we can Absolutely. certainly yeah. do this again. Uh, Matt oh, yeah. doesn't know this, but you and I had a great chat about what you've got going on at, at LSU about taking college age or that 20 to 23. Yes. Yeah, he's been doing some awesome stuff. So we'll talk recruiting about recruiting hunters. Recruiting new hunters. Yeah. Re recruiting. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the short version. Here. Yeah, let's the, hear the, it. The, the little plug is that. 
Um, everyone knows that uh, that hunter numbers are down yep, and yeah. have been long-term decline. And uh, most R3 programs, yep. um, most recruitment programs focus on kids. All right, right, take a kid right. to hunt. Um, you, know, you have women in the outdoors and all, all those kind of things. But most of them, most of the effort goes to let's take a 13-year-old out on their first deer hunt or whatnot. Right. Uh, LSU, uh, myself and uh, several colleagues have a little different of a model in that we are actively working on recruiting hunters that have never hunted before that are natural resource students. And we did about 65 hunts last year wow. of new hunters, uh, yeah. primarily urban and suburban, uh, about 80% of uh, the hunters are female, uh, primarily urban and suburban students. And um, the beauty of it is, is that our retention rates are in the 50 to 75 percent because these are people that have cars and have yes. jobs and are graduating college and have money. Yes. And, and, and we love see, being outside. And love being outside already. Yep. So what's nice and what's cool about it is, is that it's expanded to where the success we've had at, at LSU, and then there's another uh, equivalent one at University of California, Davis, has now expanded to where a great number of universities are starting this. And, and several of the organizations here have been quietly sponsoring, and I'm not gonna, I won't name any of them now, we'll do that another day, but quietly sponsoring us because, you know, it's expensive to take a person hunting sure. on a faculty member's salary. You know, try explaining to your wife you got to do sixty-seven hunts this year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, we can certainly come back and talk about that, and it's a, it's a really cool story, and there's a lot to talk about there. I'd love awesome. that. Awesome for sure. Well, thank appreciate you so your time, much, sir. No, great. It was great to see you guys, and I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Yeah.